0: Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and as we continue in this series that we are calling Life Giver, and as we move through John chapter 3, we are now in a section of the Bible that regularly finds commentary in the culture around us. Last week we explored Jesus' words about being born again. And we recognize that that phrase, born again, carries with it some contemporary cultural weight in a variety of connotations. We see that even the idea of born again Christians has become a demographic for political polling data. Born-again Christians are perceived a certain way or portrayed a certain way in the news media. But what we saw as we looked at the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus was not only were we able to debunk some of the myths around those connotations, but we saw how spiritual new birth is something that is only instituted by God and is absolutely necessary to have a relationship with him. Today, we intersect culture again as we come to the most well-known verse in the Bible. John 3.16. You see it on bumper stickers. You've seen it on road signs. You see people holding up cardboard placards with just the phrase, John 3.16 at concerts or sporting events. You see athletes even have John 3.16 painted on their eye black so that when the TV camera comes in close, they can proclaim something about their allegiance to God. This is a verse, John 3.16, that many of you learned as children. Some of you can say without even really thinking about the specific words and their meaning. And in many ways, this is considered the verse that is for beginners. It's a clear expression of the hope that we find in Jesus. But the passage is infinitely deeper than the beginner status that it's given. And I have to say that as I, as I spent the last week thinking about this, this passage carries with it a natural heaviness. I'm heavy as I think about it this morning. It's heavy... Because in these five verses of the Bible are some of the most massive ideas with some of the most serious consequences for human life. <laughs> Love. Judgment. Eternal life. Eternal condemnation. And if you let just even those four phrases sink in for a minute, you'll begin to feel the gravity of what is happening in this passage even before we begin. Love, judgment, eternal life, eternal condemnation. Every other question that you have about God or about how the world works or every struggle you've had in your life or even the struggles you've had this last week, all of them pale in comparison to these incredible truths that are set before us in these short five verses of the Bible. Love, judgment, eternal life, eternal condemnation. There is nothing in your human experience that is more important than these things. And so it's not surprising that this passage comes with a sense of public notoriety because some of the deepest realities are found right here. And so let's pray together and ask God to help us to see them, to know them, and to feel the weight of them appropriately. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you in your word longing to hear from you and we trust that you will speak. Help us to know and to feel the significance of these short five verses this morning. Help us to press aside the things that would distract us in this very moment. That by your spirit you would breathe new life upon us. Amen. John 3:16 through21 is a continuation of Jesus' explanation, or an explanation of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, found in the first part of the chapter. He explained that new birth is required to see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus had questions about this, and Jesus would describe that God himself would be the one, the only one that could give this new birth, and so the driving question behind this explanation is, is, well, why then is faith in God's solution required to be saved? Why does God require faith or belief as is expressed here? And the answer is found in the details of this explanation. God is the subject, and we see that he gives an answer. So read with me, John 3, starting at verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The first thing that we notice as we read, this explanation of new birth, seeing the kingdom, new life, is we see that the disposition of God in sending Jesus. And verse 17 points us to this disposition right off the bat. God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The motivation for God's action is saving and loving. And we'll come back to loving in just a moment. But as we consider this motivation, we see it and we contrast it to the many motivations that we're often tempted to assign to God. He's unkind. He's mean and cruel. He's distant and aloof. He doesn't care about my situation. Or whatever the motivation might be or the disposition might be that we're trying to assign to God. But this motivation, saving and loving, is striking by way of comparison. He sends a rescuer that we may know him and that we may love him. And, of course, this aligns with the message of the Gospel of John and the mission of Jesus. Remember, we've talked about it, and we'll talk about it again and again and again because it orients us to the whole uh, book of John and what's happening here. John chapter 20, verse 3. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. There's a lot we could say about seeing God's glory here. There's a lot we could say about the nature of a rescue mission and the motivation for such. But let's move forward. The second thing that we notice in this dynamic, and where we'll spend a good amount of time this morning, is the dynamic of living under condemnation and the need that we have for the new life that Jesus was talking about earlier in the chapter. For as much as John 3.16 is published almost everywhere, verses 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 are published in very few places. Remind ourselves of it in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. (laughs) But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So the thing that sticks out to me as we reread that is the description of the human condition in contrasting forms, right? Uh, whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned. Well, that's not what it says. Whoever doesn't believe is already condemned. <laughs> so there's a contrast there. That, and, and to understand the contrast, we need to take a step back and Think about carefully who God is and how he constructs the world around us. God, the creator of the universe, establishes his rule and his reign in order to accommodate his purposes and according to his infinite value and worth. God establishes the rule of the universe in accordance with his value. This infinite value allows him to establish a standard of perfection that is for the good of all of his creation. And because he, God, is of the highest worth, he brings everything into his standard. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Or Deuteronomy 32:4, the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And so we see at the beginning of this Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, and we have seen his glory, glory as from the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the backdrop for standing condemned, for the world to be standing condemned, is the marvelous glory of God. Now to be condemned is... A legal idea of sentencing, isn't it? God, according to that perfect, marvelous, glorious will, deems judgment to be rendered and condemnation be given. And in the light of his infinite value, perfection and holiness, all of humanity stands condemned, it says, before him because of their sin. Now, when you think about the world in that way, you realize very quickly that this is a very different narrative than is often presented before us today. That the world stands condemned. <laughs> Today's message is that the world is good, that people are, are inherently, in and of themselves, good, that you should strive to be even better than good. And that's how you get to heaven or get to the afterlife or get to whatever you believe in what happens next. But when you think about culture, society, people, institutions, there's a a narrative, a cultural sense in which we believe that all of these things are good. And yet, when we actually look around carefully, we, we know this isn't true. We know that in that worldview, the idea of even being good is a moving target, (laughs) depending upon who you ask, or where you live, or when you live. There's no constant standard. And even if there was, we see that all around us, (laughs) lying and cheating and stealing occur. We see people cheating on their spouses, there's nothing good about that, we see leaders who lack integrity. We see dirty politics between Democrats and Republicans and Republicans and Democrats. We see that despite all of the capabilities of humankind, all the wonderful successes and good things that we see, that, that as a whole, we continue on this path of degradation. And the reason... For the whole world standing under condemnation is not only God's perfect ways as the contrast, but also the fact that he's already clearly provided a solution. That solution we see here in the Gospel of John. And as verse 19 says, look at it with me. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. We love the darkness. We hate the light. We love doing evil things. And we don't want those evil things to be exposed. So when we look inside of ourselves, or when I look inside of myself at least, I know what I think. I know what I feel. I know what I want. I know what I crave. I know what I desire. I know my insecurities. I know my sources of pride, I see my self-serving nature, and the more I look at myself, the more there's no doubt in my mind that I deserve to be standing under condemnation. (laughs) But some people don't see it. And I think there are two types of people here. The first is the ostrich. You know the ostrich. He puts his head in the hole and he says, don't tell me. I don't want to know. And if I don't know, I'm not responsible. I want to bury my head in the sand. And when you put one ostrich next to a bunch of other ostriches, you hear a collective culture saying, don't tell me what's right and wrong. Don't tell me God's ways. And then we can continue to do whatever we want. And nothing bad will happen to us. That's the first type of person. The other type of person is what we might call the blame shifter. The blame shifter. A woman was working one night at the honey-baked ham store. And the store was equipped with security cameras. And so she was watching those small black and white monitors. And she saw a woman come in who walked down the handicap ramp. And she went between two shelves. And to the clerk's amazement, the woman grabbed a ham off the shelf and shoved it up her dress. And she pinched it between her thighs and began to waddle toward the exit. Not knowing what to do, the clerk was astounded. Should she yell at the woman? Should she chase after her? What should she do? And then just then, as the woman was approaching the door and walking back down the handicap ramp, (laughs) her strength gave out, the ham fell down and went bang, 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 bang down the ramp. But the thief didn't miss a beat. She quickly turned around and yelled, Who threw that ham at me? (laughs) Who threw it? And she ran out of the store. And so it is with everyone who loves the darkness. We want to do what we want to do. <laughs> and when we have somebody come our way trying to tell us to do something different, we don't want anything to do with it. But here's the thing just because we shift the blame doesn't actually make it shifted. Just because we stop calling something sin doesn't mean it stops being sinful. Just because we'd rather hide in the shroud of darkness doesn't mean that we will remain hidden from the one who sees and knows all things. In fact, this is the very reason why the Bible can say in one breath that God loves you and in another breath, in Ephesians chapter 4, that by nature we are objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3, excuse me. Or Romans 5, that we are enemies of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now shall we, that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And so here's the picture that Jesus is painting to Nicodemus. And the gospel writer is writing for us all. The picture is that the entire world stands condemned. The result of this condemnation is physical death and eternal punishment and we can't get ourselves out of the situation and so now we see the need to be born again to have a new life as Jesus explains to Nicodemus but we can't be born again of our own accord any more than a baby can choose to be born again of their own accord We can't create the light. We need the light to come to us. We can't control the wind. The wind simply blows where it will. And so it is with God. And we desperately need for him to contend for us. And he does. He gives people new birth. And he does it by showering the light of Jesus upon them by regenerating their hearts to see him in this new birth. And this new birth is expressed in belief. That, my friends, is salvation. Not belief that Jesus existed. Not belief that he was a good teacher. Not belief that Jesus could do miracles. Plenty of people we see in the Gospel of John believe that. But belief that he could forgive sins. (laughs) And thus, John 1, 12 says, but for all who did receive him, for all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. New birth, children of God. (laughs) Spiritual condemnation, forgiveness. Forgiveness. And you see that the nature of this belief has a synonym to it, and that is receiving him. In John 1.12, look at the words very carefully. For all those who received him, that is, all who believed in his name, receiving him is believing in him, and believing in him is receiving him. Receiving him as what? As who he really is. As the one who who is the Lord to rule over your life. Receiving is truly believing. But so often we think that some sort of mental assent is true believing and we forget the receiving. And that leads to the main point. Why does God rescue any of these enemies of his at all? (laughs) Why does God look at a world who's under condemnation a world, and by world in John 3.16, he's not talking about the physical creation, he's talking about humanity. He's talking about the same world in 1 John that we're told not to love, (laughs) but he does love. Why? Why? Why does he save any of his enemies at all? And the answer is just that simple idea that he loves us. God expresses his love by giving his son. (laughs) And we accept his love by believing in his son. God expresses his love to you by giving his son. And we accept that love by believing or receiving his son. For God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How do you communicate the love of God? I think the hardest part about this passage of scripture or preaching this passage of scripture is that with words, we are trying to communicate something that is almost incommunicable by words. <laughs> The love of God. Now, there are a lot of different ways that God loves us, but there is a chief way that He loves us. You don't get to choose. As much as you might want to choose, God, I wish you would love me this way. (laughs) The lottery got really big this week, and there's another drawing coming up. If you really loved me, (laughs) we don't choose the way that God loves us, He chooses the way. And he chooses the best way. This is how he loves you, chiefly. He loves you in that he gave his only son. He gave. He gave. He gave to his enemies. He gave to the condemned. He gave to those who didn't deserve it. He gave to the ones he didn't have to give to. He gave to you. <laughs> Because he loves you. J.I. Packer states in his famous book, Knowing God, What matters supremely is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God. But the larger fact, which underlies it, is the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands and I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he knew me first and he continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there's no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention is distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not, of, not enervates in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on the prior knowledge of the worst about me. <laughs> so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. For God so loved. How do you express the magnitude of this love so that we feel it The hymn writer Frederick Martin Lehman attempts to do so. The love of God is greater far than any tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels' song. One day, a father wanted to teach his little boy about God's love. And taking him to the top of a high hill, he pointed in all the directions of the compass. And then sweeping his arms around the horizon, he exclaimed, Johnny, my boy, God's love is as big as all of that. <laughs> Why, Father, the child replied with sparkling eyes, then we must be right in the middle of it. How true it is. For those of you who believe in Jesus, you are indeed right in the very center of the love of God. God expresses his love by giving his son. And we accept God's love by believing his son. God expresses his love to you by giving you his son. When you stood condemned, when you stood lost, when you loved the darkness more than you loved the light, he gave new birth so you could see the kingdom, so you could experience the light, so that you could enjoy the most valuable thing forever. And we accept that love by believing in his son, Jesus. And so the question becomes, do you receive his love? Or are you like the two-year-old? A mother in one of those delicious moments that only makes mothers mothers drew her two-year-old daughter to her and said, Oh, I love you. And the little girl, very much occupied, with the whim of the moment, drew away and said, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Love was taken for granted. And any of us with children have experienced the same. As early in life as the second year, the word is being illustrated, even a child is known by his doing, Proverbs chapter 20. But Donald Barnhouse comments, tragedy occurs when someone hears the voice of God saying, as he does from Calvary, as he does from a thousand circumstances in life, my child, I love you. And is answered with indifference, that shows that his love is not really returned most of life's sadness flows from such an attitude (laughs) the windows of heaven are opened when we learn to feel deeply we love him because he first loved us friends God expresses his love by giving his son we accept his love by believing in his son and I pray for those of you who are here today who do believe in his son that the bolstering of your confidence in the love of God would be all the more as it carries you through the ups and downs and ins and outs of life's circumstances. And for those of you who are here today that question the motives of God, question the ways of God, question your own place in an eternal plan of God, that today you see clearly <laughs> his love extended to you even in your darkest of states. And all you need to do is to reach out and receive him. If you'd like to do that today, please pray along with me as we all pray. Father in heaven, we see your love. And today we recognize that we need this new birth that you talk about We need to accept your love to experience you. And the promises of this love are magnificent in their measure. Eternal life. And so we put our faith in Jesus. We ask that you forgive us of our sins. We pray that you would bolster our confidence in him all the more. And we surrender the leading of our lives to him. Amen.